Race is a big topic right now. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, and she was apoplectic. She couldn't get any work done. I should mention she's white. And she felt compelled to make a statement to her friends who are people of color and wasn't sure what to say. And until she said it, she couldn't really get anything out. One of the things she talked about was an Indian friend of hers, India Indian. He started talking to her about his times he hadn't been treated fairly. And she said, did you know that Indians weren't treated well in this country? It got me started talking about race and me and my background. And she found it fascinating and said it was something to share. And I've shared it with a couple of people, this background that I'm about to share. And they said, your situation is unique, but it got me thinking about my situation. And I think it seems like something for people to share their backgrounds. I guess people don't really know about my background. And so I'll share it. And I think people look at me, I have, I have blue eyes, fair skin. My hair used to be blonde. I don't know if people know this. My parents met in India. They were both there on Fulbright scholarships, so funded by the taxpayers. And my older sister was born there. We spent a year of my childhood there. And actually, some of my earliest memories are when I was a little kid. At that time, my hair was super blonde. And it was um, very pale, very fair skin. In India in the 70s, not as many Americans there. I remember swarms of kids, would they'd swarm around me. And they'd come up and they wanted to touch my skin and my hair and pick my pockets. There were just very few white people around, and it was an unusual thing for them to see. And as far as I know, the culture, it was okay in that culture to go and touch people, touch their hair, touch their skin, pick their pockets. And so it was really scary for me. I mean, you could point out that England had colonized India, but as a five, four, five, six, a little kid, I didn't know anything about that. All I knew was it was, it was terrifying, actually. To have people going through your pockets. And you know, people talk today about microaggressions, but this is not a microaggression. Fast forward to after we're back in the States, my parents got divorced. They agreed on having joint custody with the kids after some after some time. So the kids, my, my two sisters and I would go back and forth between houses. My my dad's house was in a was in Mount Airy, Philadelphia, which is widely regarded and reported on as being a very diverse neighborhood. People get along well there, to my understanding, and that was it seemed to be the case then. My mom bounced from house to house uh, with, with staying with friends because she didn't have money, and we ended up on Rockland Street. Rockland Street at the time, we lived there for a few years, was very economically depressed. We were one of three white families on the block. In the summer, they would give out sandwiches for, for welfare to anyone because everyone there was on welfare. It was just that's the way things were. Actually, my mom points out, Josh, we were not on welfare. Okay, we were not on welfare, but there was a lot of welfare around. So I was made fun of and picked on for my fair skin. And again, this place here, people would want to touch my skin and and touch my hair. The reason we finally moved away from there, despite being part of the community, I remember being brought to a gospel church, friends of the family, and, and my mom was a member of lots of community things there. So we did things like that. I don't know. We were just part of a black community, and we did things with the people around us. But ultimately, we had to leave because I'd been picked on for, I think for, I don't know, I was picked on. And they put a lit firecracker, the neighborhood kids put a lit firecracker into my pocket that exploded. And my mom and then the man who became my stepfather, they just agreed, we can't live here anymore. The place we moved to on Walnut Lane, not that far away. This was in Maneri slash Germantown. I was mugged four times growing up, a fifth time as an adult. And the four times I was mugged were really, I mean, I was called honky and I was, they stole 
three different bikes of mine over the course of several years. I wrote, I described this in my, um, I had an episode, I'll put a link to it called, I think my greatest triumphs and my greatest shames. One time a group of kids stole my bike in broad daylight and with holding a wrench in my face. Another time I was pushed down on the ground. I was always black boys and I was a white boy. Uh, they shoved me down on the ground with a rock and the police happened to be driving by at the time. They caught these kids and I had to go to court to be a witness for this. At the same time, I was going to a day school, a Jewish day school, that I am not a fan of religion, and I certainly don't like it being force-fed to me. As an aside, I should mention my parents. My mom was born and raised Lutheran. On my mom's side of the family, we were from Northern Europe. She grew up in South Dakota. My dad is Jewish, and his family is from Poland and Eastern Europe. He grew up in Pittsburgh. So a guy from Pittsburgh meeting a woman from South Dakota in Ahmedabad, India. Interesting pairing. Not exactly sure how that happened. I don't know if you would call these two different races. I mean, I would often point out that in the 20th century, if any two races had issues with each other, the Aryans and Jews seemed to. And so I had this kind of quasi-biracial, I don't know if that's the right term, but certainly culture clash in my parents. Something that I really enjoyed was when I got out of, when I finished sixth grade, though I missed my friends that I'd gone kindergarten through sixth grade with, that's when I got to go to public school. Uh, to Masterman and Central High School, which are the magnet schools in Philadelphia. Well, Central, it's like the Stuyvesant of Philadelphia. So scaled down, it doesn't have the prestige that Stuyvesant does or or Bronx Science or, I mean, those are the schools I know of in New York. I remember it being roughly 40% black, 40% white, 15% Asian, and then Puerto Rican and and other um, ethnicities. As students, we just didn't think about race. It was, I, I probably more of my friends were white than anything else, but I, my best friends were Asian. And everyone was kind of, it wasn't a big deal. I mean, everyone knew a lot of people of a lot of different races all over the place. It was a well-regarded school, and I was, I really liked it. I mean, there were still drugs sold in the back of the classroom. Uh, there were times coming home from school at the bus stop when I got punched in the face, and there, were, there was violence and things like that. It wasn't like a great, uh, I mean, it was a great school. I loved it, and it was one of the best times of my life. Actually, at the time, white was an insult at the time. To call someone white was to say, oh, you're so white, meant they weren't cool, they were stiff and didn't get things. So I grew up white was, it was not a nice thing to say. When I went to Columbia undergrad, Columbia, the college, touted itself as the most diverse of the Ivies. And I remember getting there and looking around and feeling like, where's the diversity? Because everyone there, it was way less diverse than Central High School was. And my experience, like I took a bus to a bus to a subway and from one house and a bus to a bus to a bus to get to school. It was weird to get to Columbia and they were touting themselves as very diverse and it just didn't feel that diverse to me. While I was there, I remember volunteering at, there's a church on 114th Street that there was a student organization that would organize one day of the week, the soup kitchen, they helped organize. I didn't really want to do it as part of a student run thing. I would just go to the soup kitchen on my own for a couple of years. I just went every single Friday. I remember that the student group invited me to join them in their organizing events because I was there more than they were, more than the organizers were. And I remember a time when one of the, I forget if it was a volunteer or someone who was eating there, who I was serving. I think it was someone who volunteered there, not from Columbia, it's from the neighborhood. He was a black guy. And he came up and we'd known each other for a while. And he goes, you know what? You're white, but you're all right. Which is... I know he meant it as a compliment, but it was, a, it was implying that I can't help but conclude that it was implying that uh, even though I was white, 
I was all right, meaning most white means not all right. All these things, I don't know quite what to make of them. These are like the experiences in my life of, of race. Later, there are two businesses. I've started many businesses. Only one of them really took off on a global scale. That was Submedia. But another one that I started off in education was one of my longstanding friends who I, it didn't even occur to me. I mean, he was black. I didn't think about it. He was, I've known him since college. He was um, an ex-Marine and we were sweetmates in junior year. Then someone I knew from business school that she and I took a leadership class together. We started a business and she's black. These are, I don't know. I don't really think about these things. I feel like if you say you have black friends, that means you're racist. But I don't know. This is just stuff that happened with me. For as long as I can remember, my greatest heroes and role models were Gandhi, Martin Luther King. As I grew older, Malcolm X, Nelson Mandela. Certainly Thoreau was a big one. Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, the framers of the Constitution. On the spiritual side, Lao Tzu, Zhuangzi, both Chinese. Certainly Buddha from India. And for years, I've said the people I want on my podcast the most. It's Oprah, LeBron, Serena. Lately, if you've been listening to my podcast, you know why Bruce Springsteen has come up too. These are the heroes that I've had. Actually, once in class, I've mentioned this many times. I talk in my leadership class about all the leaders that I look up to. And one student asked me or pointed out to me that they were all white men. This would be Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Mandela, Oprah, Thoreau. People who know me know in my dating life, I've dated almost no white women. It's kind of funny that anti-miscegenation laws are on the books in, I don't know if they're in the books in the States anymore, but they were for a long time. It was illegal for me to date the women that I found attractive. I don't know, these things, to be mugged four times growing up, it it doesn't, you know, today people often call me privileged. To have a wrench waved in your face threateningly as you're surrounded by others also threatening you, to be punched in the jaw just waiting for the bus to come home, I don't know what to make of these things because I don't feel like I was particularly privileged. I, I, I often describe myself as having five Ivy League degrees, and it didn't occur to me until recently that a lot of people probably hear that and think, well, yeah, the system was designed for you. It was designed for you to succeed because that's what it's, it's a white male system and you're a white male and you're just gently cruising along. I think when they hear that it's a physics PhD, one of the degree or my master's, my MPhil and my PhD, we're getting a PhD in physics, which is not easy. And actually, maybe some people think I advantages for being a white male. I'm not sure. But I can tell you that coming from an American university, going into graduate school, I got blown out of the water because outside the United States, most countries, when you're somewhere like 15, 16 years old, you pick your major. And if you pick physics, like you take math and physics classes, and that's it. Whereas I took all these philosophy and core curriculum classes and literature and humanities classes that didn't help me in graduate school. So it was really a brutal experience. I was really depressed for a couple of those years in graduate school. I had no hope. It was really difficult times. Speaking of later things in life, it wasn't until a few years ago, in my 40s, that I learned that not everyone has been mugged. In fact, as best I can tell, most people have never been mugged, let alone four or five times. I just thought growing up, everyone got mugged. My mom got mugged at knife point, as did I. And I was just talking about this the other day. And she said all the kids had some sort of muggings or some sort of violent experience like that. I can't say for sure. It seemed like being white put me on the receiving end of these things. Being male probably put me on the receiving end of some of these things. I can't really say for sure. Of course, I'm not blind. I know about redlining and all sorts of systemic racism going in the other direction. My stepfather, who's white, his family 
his neighbors in the suburbs of Philadelphia, the neighbors burned a cross on their lawn for their activities pursuing equality. But as a child growing up, forming, those aren't really part of my experience. As a five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10-year-old kid, you don't know about these things, but you do know about your personal experience. You do know when your life is threatened. But it's funny when people come over. I don't know what to think of this. They come over. I serve them my famous no-packaging vegetable stew, and they say, you don't know what it's like to be a single mom growing up in a food desert. And I can't help but think of my mom being single for a while, part of it, and she got remarried eventually. It seemed like food deserts. Oh, that reminds me. Back in on Rockland Street, we would get, I just remember the peanut butter. We would get peanut butter where the only ingredients were peanuts and maybe salt. But our neighbors would get the government peanut butter, which was all sugary, and it tasted like peanut butter cups. I used to love going over to their houses and eating the really sweet peanut butter. So anyway, I don't know if my situation is particularly unique. It certainly feels like I've had a somewhat cosmopolitan experience. I've certainly, as I I think I said, I've been on the receiving end of, I think, racial injustice. And I've been a racial minority. And you can say, oh, well, you lived in the United States where the whites were the majority and in charge. But I'm talking about when I was like a little kid. And I did go over to my dad's house. It was one situation. My mom's house, it was often another. So I've shared this with a few people. I don't know what to make of it, but I I think it's useful right now for people to share their experiences. When I've shared this with people over the past few days, they've said, your sharing your stories made me think about mine. And I find that when you hear details of someone else's life, it leads you to reflect on your own. I think one of the biggest things missing right now and why one of the things leading to people protesting and being in the streets is that their voices are not heard. I don't see a sign from nearly anyone in authority at city, state, national level, at the very least that it's heard. There's no voice of calm reason that I hear. That's not by any stretch a solution. But I hope that people's voices, if they're not being heard, I'd like to hear. But I hope that if people are struggling with what to say, what to do, if they're being heard, I'm not saying it's the answer. I'm not saying it's enough. But I hope that people are finding someone to share their story with.